My name is Marianne, and this is Middays with Marianne. We have Heather Burkhart here from the North Carolina Coalition on Aging, and we have Lisa Regal here from AARP. Can you introduce yourself for a second? Heather, how about you go first? Hey, good to have be here this afternoon. I'm Heather Burkhart. I'm the Executive Director of the North Carolina Coalition on Aging. Uh, we are a coalition, a statewide coalition of um, a diverse membership, all focused on improving the lives of older North Carolinians. And we do that through policy, training, and collective advocacy. So um, I'm glad to be here and talking about seniors today. Welcome. We've enjoyed our partnership over the years. We're glad to have you. Lisa? Hi, I'm Lisa Regal, the Manager of Advocacy and Livable Communities in AARP's North Carolina State Office. We work to make sure that we can all live the lives that we wanna live as we age, focusing on financial resiliency, health access, and of course, um, social fulfillment. And so I'm happy to be here. And we also work on advocacy and policy changes like Coalition of Aging, and we are happy to partner with them and look forward to working more with the North Carolina Alliance for Health. We're so glad to have you, Lisa. So before we started recording, we were talking for just a minute about how much things have changed for older adults since COVID started. And I wonder if y'all wanted to weigh in on what some of those changes looked like. Well, from, from I'll just, I can start. Um, from my perspective, what I saw is a big impact, of course, on our nursing homes and um, long-term care facilities. And I think those were already in need of some more support. And I think that COVID just shone a light on it. And I think it's really, at least for us, has made us look more at rebalancing our long-term care system so that more people can stay at home and age in place if, if possible. I think you're absolutely right, Elisa. I mean, when I think of COVID-19 and the impact of on older adults, I mean, it was to it's totally devastating, right? I mean, when you think of the numbers of deaths, um, the most impacted, it was certainly those in long-term care facilities. But even in the very early stages, you know, when folks who were 65 and older were, were told to stay home um, before the vaccine, I can't tell you how many people said, I can't believe I'm in the high risk group. I'm just 65. I never thought I was um, old. So I think there was sort of just some awareness there about age that was um, at the very beginning. But we saw, you know, folks who had never needed services who were staying home um, to be safe or had loved ones go to the grocery store for them. So there were certainly impacts on social isolation and also caregiving too. you know, people who maybe um, were never caregivers before or thought they were caregivers, um, helping loved ones access technology to, to order things online, to get vaccines when they were available through technology and, and folks who are you know, just trying to stay connected and trying to learn how to Zoom and um, get iPads and, and use their phones in different ways. So I think um, you know, there's huge impacts on older adults all the way around. Um, but also when we think about technology, we've made some, some really huge strides there too. Uh, but I would say definitely, you know, the isolation, the caregiving, um, isolation in nursing homes. I mean, for over a year and a half, people weren't able to see their loved ones. So um, just devastating effects of, on older adults. Social isolation was critical. I mean, it was just terrible. And we need to come up with ways that we can address that, not just during COVID, but going forward. You know, some of the things that we were able to deploy like virtual communication 
we need to continue with that and enhance it going forward. But we really didn't see huge progress in that. I think we need we have more to go because whether you have money or you don't have money, you struggle, older adults often struggle with being able to, even if let's say they have internet, but they still are not familiar with using the devices. So first we have to make sure that people can get access to the internet, that they can afford it. And then that they also have to, we have to help uh, bridge that digital divide so that they are able to use it. Because we saw during COVID, that's how you were to sign up for your vaccine shots. Mm -hmm. That's how you were gonna get information on, the, on COVID and what's happening and what the precautions were. So we really use the internet for communication and we wanna make sure everybody can have that communication. Um, and there's luckily um, with the federal funds, there's lots of money for that. And, and so we have money to build the infrastructure. The tougher nut will be that education and that um, helping and assisting folks to, in using it. I think that's gonna be a harder nut to crack, but one that we really need to do. Yeah, I definitely wanna talk about two things that y'all mentioned. Um, one is the social connectedness issue and social isolation. And the other is those federal funds. Um, what we've used them for, what we should be using them for, and what we should take from that moving forward. Um, we know from great research that social isolation and social connectedness are key to health. Um, so while in some ways, maybe some of the things of COVID have improved lives for some people, um, I think the social connectedness and social isolation have really um, been to the detriment of a lot, um, particularly seniors. What has come out of that that we should be looking at and paying attention to over the next year two years the foreseeable future i'll just chime in and, and then lisa you can add to it but you know when we think about social isolation and older adults just to give you a reference so 25 percent of the people who are over 65 are living alone in north carolina um, which is a pretty large number. And, you know, you think about that during COVID as, as stressful as it was at my house. You know, I had other people living with me and, and I had people to interact with and, you know, older adults who were living alone and, and families that were trying to keep them safe didn't visit um, and put food in their doorstep. You know, I just, it, it's terrible. And, and what we know that we have a network of senior centers and local aging providers who are providing home services and engaging people in recreation and, and healthy activities every day, um, all of those stopped. And so I know that, you know, the there is devastating effects on, on depression and, you know, your physical health just by being isolated. And so I think hopefully we've learned that um, we need to, to make sure that communities are vibrant and engaging older adults in a lot of different ways, you know, from anything from not just bingo at the senior center, but making mm -hmm. sure that um, whether it's, you know, people meeting up for coffee or, or dance or singing or arts and crafts that, that we are providing a whole array of things for people to have uh, ways to engage in things that are meaningful in their lives. And and some of those federal funds that you mentioned did go to, to senior centers and, and community-based providers to, to help sustain them um, when they went virtual, to help fund technology, to keep people plugged in. It also went a large amount of those CARES dollars went towards nutrition for Meals on Wheels uh, agencies that had to rethink and reinvent the way that they did 
uh, services often because of supply chain issues and also the dependence on volunteers. So uh, we didn't talk about volunteers, but older adults provide a lot of service to this community uh, throughout North Carolina through volunteering and even older workers. And so many of them stop that just out of safety. And so I think you saw an acknowledgement that volunteerism as a way to engage um, is really important as well. And so those funds went to programs like nutrition services so people could do drive-through food boxes and, and have services delivered in a different way. Also, you know, PPE, um, testing equipment for nursing homes and, and making sure that when people did go to um, social sites for whether it was adult daycare that they had the, the protections they need and, and getting masks to older adults. So uh, a really good use of those dollars. And I think that huge infusion of federal dollars um, was extremely helpful. Um, and we saw older adults who had never needed services before or sought for services. And so those federal dollars were able to serve new people and take people off the waiting list. In North Carolina, we have a lot of people on the waiting list for home and community-based services. And so that infusion of dollars went to um, being able to provide support people had been waiting for for a long time. That's great. Lisa, what did you see in terms of some of those things? Um, for those federal dollars. Yeah, first, just repeating about the social isolation, I think we knew that it was harmful to health to have that social isolation, but COVID sort of made it abundantly clear. So especially in nursing homes, we had members could visibly see their loved ones wasting away. Nothing was different. They just weren't getting that social connection. And yet they were losing 20 pounds and rapidly deteriorating. So we knew that, but it's unfortunate that it takes a pandemic to, to really understand how det detrimental it is, because um, it's not as intuitive as you would think. And so the, the fact that the federal government provided the funds that are able to sustain this going forward, you know, we're going to be putting money um, into these programs, you know, as um, Heather mentioned, taking people off the wait list for home and community-based services and, and, and propping up things like adult care homes, they're changing the way you can get reimbursed for those um, facilities so that they could they can survive and, and be important to the community. Um, so I think that, the, that that's the silver lining is that we have not seen increases in funding for programs that support um, our aging population. And finally, we are starting to see movement in there. And and, and it's really needed um, because our, you know, in, in, our aging population is, is rapidly growing. Soon we're gonna have one in five are gonna be over 65 in, in a few years. So we need to, to start now. Um, and kind of getting around the whole being volunteering, uh, that's AARP loves to work with our volunteers and, and find that, they're, that that volunteerism is important to that being part of a community. So when I said I'm manager of livable communities, the big effort we have is that if we wanna live the lives we wanna live, we need to have a community that supports it that provides opportunities for vol volunteerism, that has transportation systems that allow you to get to friend, see friends and to volunteer and, and, and to go out to the senior centers. If you don't have a car, because most of us are gonna outlive our ability to drive by at least about approximately 10 years. So we need to have alternate transportation choices. Um, and we haven't even started getting into housing. If you wanna stay in your community and be part of that social connection and that network, 
many people can't stay in their homes for a variety of reasons. And most people, like over three out of four people want to stay in their community and stay in their home. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, these rapidly urbanizing areas, they, you may have a home, but then the price escalates, your taxes go up and you can't afford to stay there. Or the home's not really accommodating for you. It doesn't have a first floor master bedroom. The doorways are not accessible. And so we need to be building better housing stock. We need to be able to make changes to our home so we can stay in the place. And we need alternate housing stock because not every, you know, we, the way we've traditionally built neighborhoods is not really um, designed to accommodate this growing population. And I'd say, you know, Lisa, you talked about the growing population. I mean, we have more people over 60 than under 18 in this state already. So North Carolina has a high senior population and we're already seeing that the, the tide change. And so I think COVID has really, you know, escalated the needs of seniors in a new way that we need to look at policy differently. We need to look at programs differently. We need to learn um, how to build our capacity um, in terms of, of what's available in our state. Um, so I, it, it's been good in some ways, but we've got to have a lens for older adults that we haven't had before in this state. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think housing is a really big component of it. Um, you know, we saw because of the problems with, um, with long-term care facilities that more people wanted to be able to stay at home. Well, in order to do that, you need those federal support programs, um, you know, where they bring in meals and you can get transportation to your essential services. Um, but we also just need, it's sort of the chicken or the egg. Are, are developers going to build housing to, for this population when people don't even know to be asking for it? So we have to kind of get ahead of the curve. And fortunately, towns are looking at that. You know, I mean, Raleigh, Durham, Asheville, they're looking at um, changing ordinances to allow accessory dwelling units. Um, and I think Raleigh is looking at tiny houses. So there's lots of different way and then we just announced a partnership with Lowe's Home Improvement so that we can better communicate and, and, and help people make those changes to their homes so they can age in place. So we need to be doing all sorts of things at the same time because there's not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. We a couple of years ago bought a house that backs up to my mom's house. Um, today we wouldn't be able to afford to do that um, because the property values have just changed so much. Um, but the idea was that we would benefit from, you know, a multi-generational household without having to actually be in the same household, <laughs> which yeah. might be a little bit too much. But the, that option just wouldn't be here today when it was there five years ago. Right. And it works both ways. So you're near your mom. So maybe she can help you with your kids. Mm -hmm. And then when she ages and she needs support, you and your children can help her. Absolutely. And, and if it's on the same property, these auxiliary dwelling units, um, they, you know, the small, you know, a smaller building mm -hmm. on your facility. So we do not so call many, them granny cottages anymore. No, because they can be, Accessory you know, dwelling units. yes, they could be someone who's a caretaker for you. So they mm -hmm. might not, that might be the opposite, or it could be your, your grandmother or, you know, or your young adult child who isn't right. quite ready to be yep. out of the nest completely. Yes. Exactly. I think those intergenerational connections are so important, um, you know, and, and you see it even through technology, you know, the use and the training and support um, of, of grandkids helping grandparents learn how to use technology or share that. I think 
you know, thinking through COVID, that was another one of those great opportunities that we were able, some people were able to benefit from. Heather, we've talked quite a bit about grandparents raising grandchildren here in North Carolina. And it made me think as you were talking, it was so stressful when our small kids were learning virtually. Um, our kindergartners that couldn't quite read and needed a lot of help logging on. And I'm tech savvy enough. Um, that experience must have been really stressful and challenging for grandparents that are raising grandchildren that maybe hadn't experienced a lot of this technology before. Absolutely. And there is there were some federal dollars that came through our family caregiver support program um, that was dedicated to grandparents raising grandchildren. So in a lot of our local communities, they were able to to contract with new organizations to be able to support grandparents in that um, initiative. And right, absolutely, that that technology, the school, that intensity, uh, you know, <laughs> I it, it was an intense situation. And and to be able to do that. Um, effectively was hard on a good day. So um, I know grandparents raising grandchildren in, in many communities have support groups that they use and lean on um, to do that. But I think being able to recognize that those are needs are, are different um, for, for a variety of reasons, not only just generational, but also we know that North Carolina grandparents raising grandchildren are typically lower income families. Um, as well. And so they have their own struggles with food as they did with kids being home uh, from school and, and being able to get adequate they eat like 20 snacks a day when they're home. Yeah. <laughs> like all day so long. many snacks all day. Yeah. And, and, you know, being able to connect with, you know, what the county was doing for food distribution and, and making sure that they were able to get there and access it. Um, so, you know, there's, I think that is a really good example of a target area of, of a population that we don't often focus on who has very specific needs. Mm -hmm. The last question I have then is what have we learned? What should we take moving forward? What should we say should be left in the before times? And where do we go from here? I think we need to recognize that North Carolina is an aging population, number one, and that we can't have a one-size-fits-all response for all ages. Um, you know, you saw that, and I, there are so many people across the state who worked hard with vaccinations, but rolling out the vaccination with the older adult population first was a hard nut to crack. Um, and we saw some challenges with that in, in the reliance on um, technology, the reliance on expecting people to be able to go to a location um, and not thinking that people didn't have access to transportation or didn't have access or couldn't leave their house. We have a lot of, it took about eight months before we got a program that was a homebound based program to, to provide that vaccine to older adults. It was done in the summer, but it was a hard thing to do. And so I think number one, realizing that we've got to change our policies and programs to adapt to our changing population and that we have needs that are specific to this population that, that don't match with kids or, or with other kinds of families. So we've got to be real creative in, in our outreach strategies. I think the benefit of, I mean, the, the, the silver lining again of this COVID is that we, many of us in the advocacy world came together to advocate for older adults. 
It's not as popular of a population to advocate for, but it's a really important one. And it's, it's you know, 20% of our population and growing. So we need to be doing more. And by coming together, we really were able to make some strides. You know, we worked with Coalition of Aging. We worked with other partners. And for the first time, we really um, talked about the direct care workforce. You know, the caregivers that come in to your home or into facilities that are feeding you and helping take care of you and nurses aides that are paid, you know, below, you know, paid abysmally and don't have any benefits. And it's not sustainable because they can get jobs now at big box stores, make more money, have benefits, yet we need to fill those positions. So, so for the first time we were able to get those salaries for most of them increased in the, in the recent budget, but we recognize that we need to do more. You know, how do we recruit them, train them, retain them. And, and so I, I just think that it's the beginning of us working more effectively together so that we can be more proactive. So it's not scrambling during a pandemic on how do we help with this, with this situation. Um, if we wanna make changes in transportation and housing to support um, more mobility and different kinds of housing, we can't wait until, we can't wait any longer. Um, so I think those are things that, that really came forward in the last year. And I think we're only gonna be successful if we work together and, and make it really clear what the highest priority priorities are to address because there's so many. What are the highest priorities to address? Well, for us, I mean, I think that we've seen weaknesses in our long-term services and mm -hmm. supports, you know, the, the, and, and it's, they're really, these facilities are very expensive. People mm -hmm. are not saving. And so they're not gonna have, money to to be in these facilities and there's not enough money i mean given the monthly rate it would be hard to save enough to pay for those anyway especially given that medicare does not cover those correct you are right on it <laughs> yeah medicare will only cover a you know rehabilitation in a skilled nursing facility as long as you're getting better and so that if you have a long-term need that you're not going to benefit from a rehab then then folks are pretty much um, responsible for their own care unless they qualify for a Medicaid services. So, you know, thinking of dementia, for an example, which is a, a very long trajectory, um, that's not something that Medicare covers. Yeah. So just, you know, helping with this long-term services and support, making, being more creative and figuring out how can we help people stay at home? How can we better support caregivers? So, many people are providing caregiving for free now, family caregivers, and how can we support them because they're gonna burn out, they already are burnt out. So it's supporting caregivers, it's fixing our system so that it's more sustainable. And then one, one area we're talking about, you, you can save. And if people start saving early, they will have money for retirement and to, and to help them their, and provide themselves the care they need, but they can only do it if they have access to savings through a workplace payroll deduction which many of you listening may have that through work. You know, if you work for government, you have a 401k or automatic payroll deduction, sometimes it's matched. But for about, um, you know, a very large percentage of people in North Carolina are gig workers, part-time workers, or work for small businesses that don't offer that. So that's something we'll be advocating for too. See, um, we need to make it uh, uh, um, available for everyone because people wanna save for themselves. They want their own financial resiliency. They want that money for emergencies and for retirement. And it's. And they're finding in about 13 or 14 other states have done something to solve this. And even low to moderate income people the gig are saving money. 
and it's really working. So we, we want to make that an option for North Carolina. So that's that's another priority for us. Um, there is a bill, House Bill 899, um, 899 Work and Save. Um, most states are looking at doing something. 13 states have passed it. And we just want to have a program that small businesses can take advantage of for their employees so that everybody has that ability. And the program we're looking at would be a Roth IRA so that that money can be taken out without penalty and used for important things. Yeah, I think yeah. that personal responsibility and, and helping people, you know, <clears throat> prepare is really important um, because government and public programs can't do it all. And if you look at just the Medicaid budget and, and knowing what older adults, the cost of skilled nursing facilities on the Medicaid budget is a really big number. And if we know the population's continuing to grow older, you know, there's going to be direct hits on, on that. Uh, Medicaid budget and other publicly funded programs as older adults um, continue to age. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Middays with Marianne. I'm Marianne, and we hope you'll listen in next time.